Playback on RTE Radio 1, sponsored by FexcoCurrency.com. Your route to great rates on your travel money at participating credit unions. Dioghut, good morning and foltestach. Evelyn O'Rourke here sitting in on playback for the next few weeks. And coming up this morning, the Women of Honour react to the announcement that a statutory inquiry will be set up. Well, obviously we are definitely welcoming this. This was something that we sought all along. Sparks lie about the lifting of the ban of evictions in the Dáil. It's a truth never acknowledged, but I'm going to say it. Every party in this House seems to believe that the housing crisis was terribly mismanaged, except for the periods when they were in government. And had you noticed that there's a grand stretch in the evenings? Springtime feels like the earth is saying hello to you. But more of that later. First, the Women of Honour group. The announcement about the inquiry was made in the Dáil and it came during Liveline on Tuesday afternoon. First, I want to go to Minister for Defence and Tanisha, Michal Martin and the review into the Defence Force. the forces. decision today to publish, and what I'm basically saying, there could be no more hiding of any of this. That's the first step in the revitalisation of our Defence Forces. And I think we have to look radically at command and control, how the training systems operate, how women are treated, all of these issues that were covered by the report. But fundamentally, all of those, everything has to be examined now. Joe Duffy was quick to react. The report also said the different sources available to the group conclude that at best the Defence Forces barely tolerates women. Listen to that again. Different sources available to the group conclude that at best the Defence Forces barely tolerates women and at its worst verbally, physically, sexually and psychologically abuses women in its ranks. This will have serious repercussions. The Women of Honour are reacting to the announcement this week that a statutory inquiry will proceed on foot of the sexual abuse and harassment allegations about life in the Defence Forces. What we really want to do tonight is we want to commend the courage and the bravery of all the men and women who literally they poured out their hearts and their souls to this independent review group. Former Captain Yvonne O'Rourke spoke to John Cook on Drive Time on Tuesday evening where she described her reaction to the news about the pending inquiry. Can you tell me a little bit about your own experiences in the Defence Forces? Absolutely. So obviously my story is one of many. Um, With me, I did endure discrimination. I did endure sexual abuse. And I think what has come out of the report today also is the fact that the complaint system in the Defence Forces um, is an issue and we would consider it not fit for purpose. I waited till I left to put in protective disclosure. And in 2017, it clearly stated that I myself was sexually abused. And yet we have to wait. They were aware back then of the situation in my case, but unfortunately it has taken this long to get where we are today, which is, say, a watershed moment. A watershed moment is how the Taunish, the Micheál Martin, described it. Uh, how does it feel to hear that from the highest level, from government today? We went in with him yesterday and, you know, he did actually acknowledge all of all of our pain in there yesterday. But but let, let's be very clear. We're, we're very aware today that this is simply the start of a process that I suppose we could say we, we fought the good fight and, and maybe there is a victory for all of us out there today. But we are well aware that we have yet to finish the race. Be under no illusions, um, I would say, that, that we know there's a, a long race ahead of us. But while the group has welcomed this recommendation, the details contained in the review itself, which led to all this after 15 months of investigation, were distressing. I spoke to Lieutenant Colonel Connor King, who's General Secretary of the Representative Association of Commissioned Officers, RADCO. Brian Dobson gave a list of the allegations contained on the News at One. It's, it's a real gut punch. It's a visceral reaction, really. It's, it's shocking. 
as an association, we're saddened. Right at the outset of the report, we have a glossary of terms. Beasting, the imposition of arduous exercise, either in training or as punishment. Mobbing, victimisation and harassment of an individual after a minor conflict escalates, designed to isolate them. Tubbing, referring to the placing of an individual in a barrel for the purposes of hazing or punishment. Are these practices that you would have come across or heard about? Certainly the, 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 the latter two tubbing and mobbing, I think you said, mm. they're not they're not practices that I would ever have come across. Beasting, a colloquial term that would have been around when I was a cadet, intense physical activity to make you more robust and resilient. But where any sort of element of sadistic pleasure which has been described in this report, that is completely mm. unacceptable. And later on Drive Time, Ivan O'Rourke was joined by Senator Tom Clonan to give his response. Tom Clonan, thank you very much for joining me in studio. As I mentioned, Senator Tom Clonan, you exposed sexual violence in the Defence Forces yourself nearly 20 years ago in your research. What's your feeling this evening when you hear of this statutory inquiry? This report is extraordinary. And I just want to congratulate all of the women that have made their disclosures and all credit to Katie Hannan. Back then I, I interviewed 60 women and it set out exactly the same patterns of abuse and sexual violence and reprisal that are set out in this report. For example, on, on the issue of gender within the Defence Forces, the judge-led inquiry states that the way in which gender roles are written about within the Defence Forces reveal attitudes and norms f- about gender from the last century or even the one before that. He went on to say that to be female in the Defence Forces is to be considered an object rather than a full human being. Goes into some detail about the treatment of what, what it calls lower status men within the organisation and says that the, the workplace environment is not safe for either men or women. 88% of the women who spoke to the IRG in the last year and they did a proper survey experienced more than one form of serious sexual harassment in the last year and 17% of men. On Wednesday morning, RT presenter and journalist Katie Hannan, whose Radio 1 documentary, Women of Honour, shone a spotlight on this, gave her reaction to Morning Ireland. Even though I have heard accounts very close to a lot of the stories and the uh, incidents that are related in this report, it's still deeply, deeply shocking that this was how uh, an institution of the state conducted itself um, in full public view, really, over decades, even as, as has been mentioned many times now, uh, when all of this was pointed out 20, over 20 years ago. It's actually a very well-written report. Uh, Ms Justice Sprone O'Hanlon um, deserves a lot of praise for that. Uh, but while see, the focus is on how women have been treated in the Defence Forces, rightly so, and, and the point is made throughout it that women are obviously very vulnerable. Uh, uh, much of the accounts that are in this actually came from male members of the mm-hmm. Defence Force. And the point is made that men were also victims of, you know, most of the things that are are, are pointed out in this report, all the way up to and including rape. You know, there's fundamental, fundamental issues with how the Defence Force has managed itself since its inception, Mm. really. Later that day, the Defence Force's Chief of Staff, Lieutenant General Sean Clancy, responded to the recommendations. I fully accept the IRGDF report. There's no question, but this is a very stark report. The men and women of Oglignahern, the good men and women, do not accept the inappropriate behaviours that exist in our organisation. There's a very clear roadmap towards a statutory inquiry, which I welcome. There are areas of our organisation where the people that have perpetrated some of this inappropriate behaviours, these harassments, these bullyings that still exist. This is not a historical issue in the organisation. This is an issue that exists today. 
and that has been part of my learning, part of the truth to power that I've been speaking with the men and women in, in various sessions for over the last year. Lieutenant General Sean Clancy there. And there was more reaction on another heated topic too, as the ongoing fallout from the lifting of the ban of evictions and the vote of no confidence, which the government subsequently won, caused ructions across the Doyle Chamber again this week, with accusations, criticisms, claims and counterclaims being made across the floor. No wonder Sinn Féin is so happy. They get to be consistent and direct their ire at everyone, including the Labour Party. Of course, if you mention the housing crisis in the North, you're shouted down. They don't want voters to know what 20 years of on and off Sinn Féin government, replete with Sinn Féin housing finance, really looks like. Your record in government is low targets set, low targets missed. Deadlines set, deadlines missed. And the result of your failures is heartbreaking. Lives on hold for a generation where people now feel that no matter how hard they work, they still won't be able to build a decent future. Nero fiddles while Rome burns. Keeping or extending the ban isn't necessarily going to solve this crisis into the future. It's like making sweets free for children. It's fine for a little while, but ultimately detrimental to the greater need. Deputy Barry Cowan's comments in particular caused a bit of a reaction. Barry Cowan, Fianna Fáil TD for Lee Shoffley. Good morning. Good morning. He joined Claire Byrne the next morning. So you said that extending the eviction ban is not necessarily going to solve this crisis. And you said it's like making sweets free for children. Now, a lot of people were offended by that. Well, what I said was just an analogy in an effort to get the message across that short-term solutions don't always work in the long term. So you're apologising if offence was caused, but you know now that offence was caused. You know that comparing uh, sweets for children to people who are losing their homes, that is offensive, isn't it? People find that offensive. I'm I'm apologising if that is the case. I personally, as I said, didn't set out to offend anybody. Sparks continue to fly in the doll across the week. This morning, Taoiseach, you've engaged in some political theatrics, some performative anger. You've spent more time lambasting Labour than you have setting out what you say government has achieved on housing. And yet you're accusing us in opposition of politicising housing. On Drive Time on Thursday, Sarah McInerney spoke to the Minister for Public Expenditure and Reform, Pascal Dunhu, about the situation. Minister, even if you give the funding and the capacity isn't there because the hotels are getting full with tourists or refugees, you know, if there's literally nowhere for people to go and you see over the next couple of weeks families living in their cars, would that change your mind or is there anything that would change this government's mind? Just because we'll move heaven and earth to do it. But the decision that we have made in relation to bringing the moratorium to an end is driven by the fact that, number one, we did say it was an emergency and temporary measure. And number two, if we were to extend it in the eyes of the rental sector and landlords, I think they would see the chances of it actually coming to an end are low. And ultimately, I believe that would create a situation in which we will have nobody wanting to become a landlord and those right. who are currently landlords wanting to leave. On Thursday morning, we heard this view from the coalface. Wayne Stanley is Executive Director of the Simon Communities of Ireland. He's here in studio and a very good morning to you, Wayne. Wayne Stanley was in studio to discuss the issues contained in their latest report called Locked Out, which looks at the availability of housing for people relying on housing assistance. The primary route out of homelessness has for a long time been the private rental market. This is absolutely a national crisis. We're not seeing any properties outside of Dublin. 
and Dublin, you have to put that in the context of the population. Moving on, Wayne, to the lifting of the temporary eviction ban now, how are you preparing for that and what are you expecting? We're expecting to see a very significant increase in the number of people presenting to our services. But is there any additional funding available to you? The department would say that there is no uh, cap on funding, that, that funding isn't a barrier in any way. You're still calling, even a day out from the ending of the temporary ban, you want them to continue and you're calling for a reversal. Of the yeah, it's never too late to reverse a bad decision. But while politicians here are all focused on this, this week too saw American presidential names shoot right back into the Irish headlines with the confirmation of a visit by President Biden shortly. I just wanted to move on to something else that's happening shortly and the, the green and red of Mayo, I can see it still. Those are the lyrics rebounding off Killian O'Connor posters and reverberating around the Oval Office this evening as the President of America prepares for a trip home to Mayo and to Ireland with the island set to mark the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement. And I'll bet he didn't have to Google those lyrics. Barry Lennon there sitting in the presenter's chair on late debate this week. And what about that other presidential name? Never far from the headlines. Well, good morning, everyone. A busy day ahead. It was a busy night and you are waking up to history. America waking up to the historic news that President Donald J. Trump has been indicted. He is the very uh, first president. We've never seen this before in history. First, tell CNN, Trump faces more than 30 counts related to business fraud. This case centers around the accounting of hush money payments made to adult film star Stormy Daniels. Let's talk now to Niall Stanage, White House columnist with The Hill, who's on the line. All that really is clear was encapsulated in that CNN clip played, Brian, which is that it is in relation to these payments. This is a very historic matter, but it has been catalyzed by really the most minor of the several league challenges that Trump faces. He faces other probes into the 2020 election, into January the 6th, into classified documents. This case is a rather thin read on which to hang such a historic moment. Just in terms of what we might see next week, and obviously the images that uh, emerge from all of this, uh, as you say, could well be historic. I mean, are we going to see an ex-president being handcuffed? Yes, to some of those is the short answer. If there is a picture of Donald Trump as a mugshot, that is going to ricochet around the world about the instant it is first released. And with Donald Trump as ever, watch this space. Well, nomad Hope and warriors. Words that filled the airwaves this week, starting with Ryan Tuberty. Emperor of the airwaves who took on a gladiator on the tennis court. Russell Crowe, good morning. Good morning to you, my good man. Ryan Tuberty was joined on Tuesday by Russell Crowe, actor, musician and clearly his most challenging role to date, Ryan's tennis partner. Talking about tennis, folks. Russell was on to discuss his new movie, The Pope's Exorcist, which was filmed around Dublin last summer. But it turns out that in his downtime, Russell invited Ryan to hit the courts. That's it. In fairness to you, you very kindly said, come on, play some tennis. We did. You were very, very good at mentoring an inadequate player to bring me to just substandard. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm harsh, but fair. <laughs> I, no, actually, I'd argue, Russell, you're harsh and sometimes less harsh. <laughs> in, in an attempt to bean me in front of people, say at one point, could somebody turn Ryan's legs down? <laughs> it's all just to keep the day flowing right, you know. <laughs> but what about the movie itself? It's not all crack kill look as old when you're preparing to be an exorcist. 
you've seen the film now, so you yeah. kind of get an idea what I was dealing with with my Monday to Friday oh. and why getting together on a Sunday and having a bit of a sweat and a bit of a laugh and, and pouring a Guinness after tennis was, was so important to me. Congratulations on the movie. We're talking about The Pope's Exorcist. Would you give us the poster blurb for what The Pope's Exorcist is about, Russell, if you wouldn't mind? Well, you know, it's a horror film, but I think there's um, a lot more elements to that. It's got a little touch of the Da Vinci Code. we mm. got a little Indiana Jones, Boys on Adventure yeah. aspects to it. I mean, there's a lot of humour. I just really wanted to represent the character of the man, and, and the more research I did about Gabrielle, the more I could see that that was one of his great weapons for his life and what he did, you know. Had a lot on your plate there. A little bit. <laughs> but, you know... <laughs> That's when it gets to be fun in a in a way when there's uh, enough complexities to sort of get you to bed early at night and up early in the morning. If you have a big gig the next day, you've got to take it easy the night before where you'd say, look, I've got to knock off early tonight because I've got to do my homework. You know, it's, it's kind of like being at school. Yeah, well, it really is. And that's where yes. the discipline comes in. You know, I try and have a lot of fun in my life, but I uh, absolutely respect the job and, and respect the time and the focus that it requires to do it. Again, we come back to, you know, because Sunday afternoons playing tennis was a reward. You know, I would spend Saturday then prepping for the, the coming week. And then Sunday, I can just go and have a sweat and a bit of a laugh. And, you know, you get ready for the Monday. But, mm. you know, it's that discipline that brings you the satisfaction. You know, it, you can't just stab at these things. You've got to give them some deep consideration. and. Sure and, you know, put your best foot forward. For many of us, Russell Crowe's performance as Maximus Meridius is the gladiator. But as we showed Hollywood during Oscar season, we've sent a new star ourselves over to help them out. And his eyes are now on the prize. And Russell is envious. Quick one, as a complete aside, because uh, you mentioned on the Late Late Show when we were there recently that you are no longer going to be, uh, that you're not going to be resurrected for the Gladiator sequel. But you, I don't know if you're getting wind that Paul Meskell, local hero here in Ireland, is to star in that. Do you, are you following that story or is that all behind you now? <laughs> um, I hear that young fellow Paul is, a, is a, a good dude and I wish him the best of luck with it. But yeah, I don't, I don't want to dwell on it too much because it does take me back to a period of time when obviously I was significantly younger. And I look back on it and, I've, and I loved every minute of it. Mm. That wasn't actually the case at the time. But I, look, man, I do like being on a period movie set, you know, stepping into those sort of costumes and those sort of situations and stuff. It has great appeal to me. So the, what I'm getting at is that there's a slight edge of jealousy <laughs> yeah, people get to have that experience that I had once, you know. As Russell Crowe knows, having faced Ryan across the tennis net, sports grounds are the modern day battle grounds where warrior spirit is required to take on the foes, especially when you're the underdog. Some of the world's biggest football names arrive in Dublin today for the start of Ireland's Euro 2024 campaign. French soccer journalist Julian Laurent is on the line. Uh, Julian, there's a fair bit of trepidation here. Have we reason to be, <laughs> to be fearful? Well, it's certainly a very informed French team that you will be hosting in Dublin tonight. They won 4 nil against the Dutch. They were very, very good. It's a new era, of course, because Kylian Mbappé is the new captain. So, yeah, the French are looking great. They're in great confidence. Clearly, the momentum from the World Cup is still there. So it will be a, a big battle for, for you Irish people tonight. Oh, yeah. I can, maybe I can quote from Ken Early, the Irish Times uh, soccer correspondent uh, this morning, Julian. He, he writes, So France thrashed the Netherlands 4-0 on Friday night. The reflex response might be to curl into a ball and rock gently back and forth, crying, <laughs> if they can do that to Holland, what will they do to us? Yes, Ireland versus France. 
it was going to be a tough one, but it turned into an epic battle. One minute to go, plus at a time. Another corner for Ireland, here it comes. Good one too. And it's a wonderful save again as the head of Nathan Collins is denied. And a yellow card has been brandished as well. Oh, what a header that was, but it's going into the top corner. Pulled out a terrific save, two in a row. I thought that was 1-1. Sellout crowd. It was almost back to the old days of Lansdowne Road with the uh, crackling atmosphere driving on the team. A 1 0 defeat last night. Uh, the goal for the French coming five minutes into the second half. And we really could have taken a draw out of the match. It took a brilliant 90th minute save from the French goalkeeper to deny Nathan Collins a last gasp equaliser. And it does bode well for the next games for the Republic of Ireland, which will be an away match in Greece in June. We'll hear the assessment of manager Stephen Kenny. Yeah, we know we're disappointed to lose the game. When we're playing someone of the quality of France who are you know, the top team in the world, one of the top teams in the world. You need to create a game, a few chances. Like They didn't really have any chances before they scored, even though they had sustained periods of play. I thought we defended very well against an unbelievable strike from Pavard, but we're disappointed with the goal, of course. But up to that point, there was no, no chance to concede it. I felt we rallied strongly and players gave everything, like gave everything, pushed France all the way. They were relieved to get out here with a win. Ireland manager Stephen Kenny there. And fans seemed happy enough with that result too. Oh, we played so well, we fought so hard. Keen McCormick, outside the Aviva after the match. Disappointing that we didn't get something out of the game. I think, obviously, France, World Cup finalists, class team. I thought we played really well. OK, well, you know, we're not the greatest team in the world, but I, I think the team spirit, the camaraderie, you can see the crowds really behind them. So, yeah, like, I take a lot out of that, like, you know. Look, we can't say a bad word about them. They really tried their hardest. and Disappointing can be results, but positive nonetheless. Can you describe your mood after the game? Positive, I think, mostly. I honestly came here expecting them to lose 3 or 4-0. So I was pleasantly surprised. They gave it a really good goal and could have got something out at the end. Brilliant save. So it was a very good game. I thought we were, we were lucky not to get a draw. and um, it's Still a loss, right? But like, the team played well. Players are coming on, a lot of young players. So, you know, hope for the future. Well, the atmosphere in the place was magic tonight. Yeah, full stadium, you know. Everybody up for the team. And look, there's plenty of games to go, you know. We'll come back and we'll win a few more, you know. As heard on Morning Ireland. Yeah, so we were talking about the match last night. Ireland played France in the Viva Stadium. Darren Maloney was doing the commentary and the French sang along to La Marseille. And then Dara said... Our on the vein. Wait to hear this. And Ray Darcy highlighted one of the reasons that made the Aviva so special that night. Salam, you were the you were the the, the twelfth player on the Irish team last <laughs> night. <laughs> How are I you? Agree. Great, <laughs> great, to, great to chat to you. Yeah, yeah. Wow, that must have been special. Did you sense that? 
Absolutely, it was electric. I think from the moment the pre-match um, music was in the in the stadium and people were getting into their seats, there was a fantastic energy and there was a real sense of community and you know everybody mm. kind of getting behind the team. Who decided that you were go just going to sing on your own? I brought that suggestion to Did the you? table. Yes, it's our national anthem. It's mm. a chance for people to to sing along and people really do want to sing along and I think that the FAI for this new season of games and for the international games they're looking for something to bring people together thankfully it paid off I think and, and everybody was in fine voice and sang along with me but I, I do think it, it allows people to to sing together it was just a huge honour to do that last night I was over the moon and my dad uh, is listening in from the Matter Hospital today oh. and he was tuning in so you know it was great to sing that for dad last night just amazing you know it was, it was really yeah. special Your dad did he shed a tear or is he that sort of man or would he admit <laughs> he to is. it if he did? <laughs> <laughs> he would. He's a great singer himself. And uh, when sport and music come together oh. in my family, it seems to kind of create this, you know, this magic. And so for my brothers and everybody watching um, last night was really special for them too. Lisa Lamb there, inspiring the Irish football fans at the Aviva Stadium. And as words like optimism and hope were bandied around the airwaves in more programmes too. Almost 25 years on from the Good Friday Agreement, the importance of women's involvement in the peace process is being re-examined. On Wednesday, former government minister Liz O'Donnell joined Claire Byrne in studio to discuss the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement when optimism and hope and ultimately peace was the prize. Liz O'Donnell was a junior minister for foreign affairs at the time of the negotiations. Liz, you're very welcome. Thanks, Claire. Good to have you here. One of the pivotal figures, of course, during that time was the Northern Ireland Secretary Mo Molam. She made a really significant contribution to the peace process and the negotiations because, uh, well, her personality was unusual. A classic Labour woman politician, reforming by nature. You know, she approached everybody with a great degree of warmth and familiarity, which was quite a surprise to people in Northern Ireland who were running the show and also the politicians. But she was a highly intelligent woman. And of course, then later on in the negotiations, when she was quite unwell, um, you know, she would pull off her wig uh, in the middle of a, a kind of a meeting. I think she was disarming to some of the more traditional parties. But I loved her and I felt that she was there at the right time. And the, she was very supportive of the Women's Coalition as well. And she was very supportive of me. I mean, I came from the women's movement originally and so did Monica McWilliams and so did Mo. So uh, you bring that baggage with you and uh, that armour, I suppose. The women, on the other hand, who had come from outside the political theatre, like the Women's Coalition, they had difficulty in being perceived as proper politicians. So they did undergo a lot of misogyny and, you know, insulting behaviour from uh, the unionist politicians. And how did George Mitchell deal with that? Well, George... George actually introduced civility to all of us because it's wrong to think that it was only misogynistic abuse. What had passed for politics in Northern Ireland was very much name calling and shouting at people. So what George allowed us all to do was to talk without interruption. And it started for her with a phone call from her then party leader, Mary Harney who told her as we were talking she said oh and by the way you're doing the north of course I nearly died of heart attack <laughs> by the way you're doing the north so I said okay yeah, and it was, it was daunting uh, because I was such a young deputy but I just said listen I knew I was going to be in the company of experienced politicians like Bertie and David Andrews as my senior minister so 
Anyway, I just got stuck in, did my homework. A lot of people don't realise that this process, the peace process had been going since, you know, the late 80s, early 90s. So a lot of the discussion documents, the framework document, the Downing Street Declaration had already been tabled. So we had a broad outline of where a possible settlement would lie. So you just did full immersion? Full immersion because I had to. I mean, lives were at stake. You know, people were still being murdered and the ceasefires were only been reinstated and it had been breached before. Claire then went on to ask her, did she still have hope? And looking at the situation now, how do you assess the success of, of the Good Friday Agreement? Well, on the first thing, I do have hope that we will get the institutions up and running. Brexit has completely disrupted everything. It's now up to uh, Jeffrey Donaldson and his colleagues. I don't think they should be pressurised. I think they have to be happy to go in because if they go in and they're not quite happy, it won't be enduring. Yeah, Yeah, we need the institutions to stay and be enduring. But while there are many plans afoot next week to mark the 25th anniversary of the signing of the Good Friday Agreement, the secrets of the past in the North continue to haunt many. But even in the bleakest of times, hope can be found too. The Commission for the Location of Victims' Remains was established by the British and Irish government to help find the bodies of the so-called disappeared, 17 people who were mostly abducted, shot and buried by the IRA, but whose remains were never found. 13 have been found now. Jeff Nupfer, the man who led the search for the so-called disappeared, is to retire from the role after almost two decades. And he's with us this morning. Jeff Nupfer, good morning. Thanks for taking our call again today. Good morning. On Morning Ireland, Gavin Jennings spoke to him and started by asking him to reflect on his time in the role. Well, it's been a, a, a remarkable time for me. We've always maintained a very close relationship with the families. We have a, a, an internal policy that the families will never find out about developments we're making in relation to their case from anyone other than us. So we never want them to turn on a radio or a television to find out something we're doing in, in relation to their case. Some of the cases were described by the Republican movement as not sanctioned. The leadership uh, of the day didn't have anything to do with them. In the cases where they were sanctioned and they did have close ties with the case, they've tried to be very, very helpful indeed. Columba McVeigh, Robert Nyrak, Joe Linsky and more recently Seamus Maguire, do you think their remains will ever be found? Well, we're always hopeful. You know, we certainly never give up hope. And in all four cases, we're pursuing lines of inquiry. Those lines of inquiry we would hope, will will lead to a success in due course. You're retiring this week. What would be the standout moment, do you think? Obviously, the recovery after months and months, or sometimes years of searching, is a a great feeling for us. Uh, But that's tinged, of course, with the the understanding that it it means something pretty final to the family. There's no two ways about it. Having found the haystack, never mind the the needle in the haystack, is a a very good feeling for everybody directly involved. On Sunday Miscellany, they went back in time too with more reflections on the human impact of political strife. Anyone who travelled in Western Europe in the years before the outbreak of the Second World War was aware of a tangible atmosphere. Everyone knew that war was inevitable. Here, Mervyn Wall recalled the atmosphere in Rome on the cusp of the outbreak of the Second World War. I spent a month in Rome in March-April 1939. I was staying with that very hospitable man, an old friend, Dennis Devlin, who was not only a very good poet, but was also the secretary of the Irish Embassy to Italy. Some nights later, we wandered into the Piazza Venezia, where a big crowd had gathered, shouting, Duce, Duce. Mussolini was on the balcony of the palace, addressing the people with rousing words. It was too depressing to stay. One felt that war was very near now. 
and Dennis rather felt that I should return home, but I was unwilling to go. The Europe which one knew seemed on the brink of destruction, and I wanted to see what I could of it before the catastrophe. We wandered off that night away from Mussolini's oratory, and while drinking a glass of wine in a restaurant, were joined by a third commercial attaché from the British Embassy, so depressed by the world's situation that he had already consumed a good deal more wine than was good for him. He was very silent, too stricken to say much, but when Dennis had the bright idea of going to the Trevi Fountain, where he undertook to read aloud Yeats's last poem, the commercial attaché came uncertainly after us. The Trevi Fountain is a good place to listen to great poetry. I don't know what the thoughts of the third commercial attaché were, properly, that all the Irish were mad. But to me, Yeats's noble-sounding words were a declaration of the invincibility of the human spirit at a time when, beneath our feet, Earth's very foundations had begun to crumble. I enjoyed the line about the Trevi Fountain being a great place to read Yeats's poetry. So, if you're lucky enough to get to Rome, make sure you pack your soundings along with your passport. Now we've been hearing for the last while about hope and warriors and the announcement of one particular athlete's retirement this week drew tributes far and wide. Certainly a man who brought the crowds hope and optimism. In the last couple of minutes, the Irish Paralympian Jason Smith has announced his retirement from competitive running, ending a career that has spanned two decades. Well, I'm joined on the line by David Gillick, Olympian and former European 400 metre champion. Good morning, David. Morning, Claire. Calling time in his career, but it has been an incredible two decades for him. Oh, yeah. Like when you consider roughly 19 years unbeaten, which is phenomenal, you know, and then you factor in all the medals he has won, you know, including like nine world championship gold medals. He's got his six Paralympic gold medals. I lived with him actually over in Florida. We trained together. You know, living with him, I really kind of got to know him. I got to know kind of like how he went about his business, his professionalism, but also getting insight into, you know, Stargardt's disease, which affects his eyesight and the support that he needed, but also his own kind of perseverance and his own desire to be the best that he could be and even it has to be recognised as well he did compete in Open European Championships back in 2010 so he was the first Paralympian to to compete in able-bodied championships as well and a lot of people might forget that he ran 10.22 for 100 metres like that's not too far off the Irish record as it stands now at 10.17 you know he, he was very 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 talented And the tributes continued throughout the day to Jason Smith Well now, Sean, Asbet has the title. I, I don't even know if it sits easily on your shoulders, Sean, because of what you've been through. Uh, you are at seven foot six, Sean. Would you be Ireland's tallest man, insofar as you know? As far as I'm aware, yes. I'm Ireland's tallest man still. All this week, Joe Duffy's been hearing about Marfan syndrome. And it, okay, it means you were extra tall for your age, which is where the conversation began. What started off as one call, as so happens with Liveline, and it snowballed and snowballed. So I have gigantism um, causes you to keep growing, more or less. And when did you realise this, or your family realise it? Ah, uh, well, basically, I was um, about six foot five by the time I was fourteen. Went to a doctor, and he didn't diagnose gigantism at that stage. But basically, he told me I would keep growing and um, probably wouldn't see the age of forty. Why? Basically yeah. said that it would be, be such a strain on your body. So I basically went, as I say, left the wildlife like an idiot. Left school, went, got jobs in bars. And because I was, a, as I say, six foot five or so, they thought I was 16, 17. Did right. a little bar apprenticeship, worked in security, all kinds of things like that. But were you, Sean, were you a big baby? Yeah. Well, I was born basically 
goodness me, it was uh, one of those record weights. Um, I also had five teeth and full head of hair. Wow. John, being born with five teeth, Mm. I'm not being facetious, but but you wouldn't have known what to do with them, surely, or what? No, as babies do, they put their hands in their mouths. Yeah, yeah. Of course, I was biting my fingers and doing all kinds of things, so they had to put boxing gloves on me. Seriously? Yep, and I eat through them. And by the way, what size shoes do you take now? I take a size 22. Sean went on to tell a fairly gobsmacked Joe Duffy the story of his life the challenges that he faced, but then how he moved on and has done some wonderful work as a pastor. He loves helping others and enjoys the work he does. So Joe asked him... But is there any advantage in being seven foot six? Well, basically, companies seem to notice that taller people seem to be better at work, mm-hmm. better in uh, getting things going, more dynamic, believe it or not, and very highly intelligent. And listen to you, that's true. That's true. <laughs> Joe Duffy there, having a fascinating conversation on Thursday's Liveline. And another topic of conversation that came up a lot this week was to do with the big themes. Weather, time, even who's your real self. This is the imaginal moment that's within your psyche that is the real you. The clocks have sprung forward and while you were grumpy about losing the air in bed, radio programmes across the week have been reminding us how this really is a magical time of year. I'm going to call it the grand stretch in the evening bit. This is going to sound weird, but even the mud on the ground will twinkle in twilight. (laughs) Now, sadly, the mud in my garden doesn't sparkle, but it does encourage me to at least look at the weeds. But for the more spiritual types, this is a significant time. And we go now to a hotel room somewhere in Letterkenny where hopefully the writer and sage Michael Harding is alive and on the phone. Good afternoon, Michael. Hello, Brandon. How are you? (laughs) We're going to talk about the turn in the year. It'll be nice to get the stretch in the evening here now, won't it? I know this sounds very mundane, but like as you get older, these are these are the things you look forward to. I love it. I mean, it's not mundane. You could make a career now as a wellness professional telling people about the stretch in the evening. (laughs) Michael Harding spoke eloquently to Brendan O'Connor about the healing power of this time of year. And you should just pay attention to the way that the light declines between six o'clock and eight o'clock. And you could tell people that that will do your soul so much good that you'll wake up tomorrow morning refreshed. And it's true. Yeah, I think there's something special about the light at that time in the evening. The winter is the hard time. There's just a lift in everybody when you come to the springtime. This is the imaginal moment that's within your psyche that is the real you. This is the moment when you have, as Rumi used to say, when you have the face you had before you were born and it arises to greet the spring and you can feel it inside you, that there's something, yeah. there's something deep inside you wants to respond to the springtime because the springtime feels like the earth is saying hello to you. Now for you, who knew? You know that Mother Nature is doing her best to cheer us up when Derek Mooney starts talking about the dawn chorus. This year taking place on the 7th of May in the Cuskinny Marsh and Nature Reserve in Cove. A place that local man and ornithologist Jim Wilson is proud to call home. And you will hear why. Jim was out for a stroll the other day on the reserve and he noticed a very early singer. A robin. Jim first suggested this location for the Dawn Chorus and it has proven to be a big hit. Hi Derek, I just decided to come out and go for a stroll in one of my favourite places which uh, a lot of the listeners are very familiar with. I'm here 
I'm at Cuscanimarsh. It's nice and peaceful, just at the entrance to where we'll be setting up to do the dawn chorus. I've got a, a little friend up here in the bush. Uh, it's a robin. It's getting in early. I mean, robins will breed quite early, so this one is setting up territory. If we get a few mild days, when the days are starting to stretch in, in time as well, it, it can kickstart the odd robin or two. And here it is, just here at the end, like it's almost like as if it's guarding. It's up in a, a hawthorn and it's just chilling away and singing, but staking its claim. And having this as your daily soundtrack really is something magical. And even those hard-headed business types are stopping to smell the roses at this time, as Shea from Queen found out on The Business with Richard Curran. When the clocks go forward and you get that sneaky little extra hour, there's a, such a sense of giddiness at the thought of getting your social life back. It's just that little bit more freedom, I suppose, when you get that old grand stretch. And there's a, such a buzz to it. Ruth Medjiver, the acclaimed photographer, spoke enthusiastically about the effect of the light at this time of year. When there's a big gig on, you start to see like-minded music lovers in their throngs, almost on a little pilgrimage out to the venue, and just hearing all the different accents from across Ireland, they start singing the songs. <laughs> it's an unguided choir of people walking to the Lewis. Music photographer Ruth Medjabar finds the brighter evenings add another perspective to her work, especially when shooting outdoor gigs. I've been known to run around festival sites at sunset in that very short window of time where the sun is almost setting. It's physics. It goes from gold to blue. You get this gorgeous mix of colour. It's kind of iridescent and magical and it's a witching hour for photographers. Evening sun Why don't you stay this is going to sound weird, but even the mud on the ground will twinkle in twilight. <laughs> but as well, when you see the sunset on people's costumes at festivals, everyone just walks around glittering and sparkling. There's no greater joy than being able to kind of chase a group of sparkly people up an avenue and kind of go, wait, can I take your picture? Can I take a picture? Because they just look utterly fabulous. And the farmers appreciate this change in the seasons too as Hazel Mullins explained. So the moment that the parlour switches off in the evening, there's just this peace settles around the farm. There's a little gate in the corner of where I watch the sunset. It frames it. It is like a tunnel of light that bounces off the parlour. In the distance, I can hear my dad tinkering in the background. So at this time of the evening as well, we have the rooks and the crows that like to fly high overhead and like to chat to each other as they're heading home to their nests. It's the end of the day and it's time for me to go into my own house heading in for our tea. But the clocks changing can bring other challenges. Ruth Medjabar again. I mean, like for me particularly, and it's Ramadan, it's an hour harder for us. You go from being able to eat at seven o'clock to now we can't eat till eight o'clock. That's difficult. <laughs> so I'm very conscious of time. And to end, as Ruth Medjabar said, seeing people filing along to see their favourite gigs is all part of the special time of year. She packed my bags last night, pre-flight. Zero hour, 9am And I'm gonna be high As a kite by then 
And earlier this week, Elton John fans crowded into the three arena for two nights and we hear that Rocketman was the real highlight. So, we'll leave you with this. It's lonely out of space On such a timeless flight I think it's gonna be a long